Hello everybody, welcome to another episode of Tales from Tolt. My name is Dwayne Davidson, your host. This is a program where we discuss the fascinating and rich history of that place we call the Sonoma Valley, basically from Monroe to North Bend. Hello, everybody. This is Dwayne Davidson with another episode of Tales from Tolt. Today's a very special day because I've got my first international guest today. Amazing woman. Her name is Diane Malcolm, and she is from New Zealand. Hello, Diane. Diana, I should say. <laughs> Hello. Thank you for having me. Diana, you don't think I would get that name. I'd flub up on that name because that's my sister's name. So I should have no excuse there. Uh, so... Uh, oh, it's only one letter. We'll forgive you. <laughs> Diana uh, owns Mud Media, uh, a publication uh, firm that does a lot of uh, publications about agriculture. She's a former sports journalist. She lived uh, for a while in Australia, but she now is back in her hometown near Christchurch, New Zealand. And for folks, um, today's episode is going to be kind of about the history of dairy farming in our uh, wonderful Snoqualmie Valley. And I wanted to bring the perspective and to put it all in context, uh, please bear with me for a minute, uh, Diana, while I give this kind of a background story for you and for uh, the listeners. About 40 years ago, and that's just incredible for me to think about that this has been 40 years ago, I was a young man working at Carnation Farms, uh, 20... uh, four years old, and a big tour of uh, Carnation Farms is set up as a PR place for the Carnation Milk Company, and we had a bunch of registered cows. And this big, we had tours of people all the time, but this particular tour was a bunch of New Zealand dairy farmers, and they all came through on this bus together, and and I got kind of interjected into being a little bit of a host to them. And uh, I was young, very impressionable, very energetic, and, and loved the dairy industry, and I said, probably in a sarcastic way, which young guys do, uh, hey, if all of you guys are here, who's milking your cows? And that's when I heard this remarkable answer given, delivered to me. No one. They're all dried up. And I looked at them with great puzzlement because I thought, that makes no sense. What do you mean? And that's when they introduced me to this concept about seasonal dairying, which does not exist in the States. Never even heard of it before. And so I pledged at that moment in time that someday on my bucket list, I was going to go check this out in New Zealand. And it took me 40 years to do so. But finally, with the help of uh, uh, Anne-Marie Mignoshi, who introduced me to Diana, who introduced me to this wonderful couple, well, it's actually a family of the Stewarts, uh, David and Marie and uh, TJ and Mark and his wife, Stacy, uh, the stewards of Barwell Farms. What wonderful hosts these people were. They gave me my own room. I went out with David in particular. We, uh, TJ showed me all about their farm, but David took me up in his helicopter ride and and we went and visited other farms around this round of their farm. Uh, also, it was just a wonderful, wonderful uh, experience and I'm so thankful for that opportunity. But it gave me uh, a chance to see New Zealand uh, farming operations. And what I learned, Diana, was that in the 40 years it took me to finally get over there, a lot has changed there. 
A lot has changed here and a lot has changed there. What's changed here is dairy farming is almost all practically gone. What was numerous farms, dozens of farms, uh, all family farms have all moved to eastern Washington and are now been replaced with farms that average 2,000, 3,000. We have one dairy up here in just north of Pasco that has 9,000 cows on it. One dairy farm, 9,000 cows, 120 cow carousel. And uh, they're just these amazingly big operations that is very foreign to me. I'm still trying to get used to that. And uh, there's maybe four or five dairy farms where there used to be just dozens in uh, Washington state uh, in Western Washington. And there's different schools of thoughts here. We're facing the same sort of stuff. Like I did a story just recently in Australia on a growing 4,000 cow operation, but then, you know, down the road from me here, there's like a 20 cow operation selling raw milk to the roadside. I think it's just become very diverse and everyone's got to be very careful how we go forward to preserve, you know, cause how do you care for so many cow- cows? Well, unless you use a lot of technology. Exactly, exactly. And then, so, but then what I learned through David in our tours around and looking at different farms, he told me that he actually started off in a sheep farm, that that was actually a sheep farm. And that he said 40 years ago, when I made my first contact with these New Zealanders, sheep was still prominently the agricultural uh, base. So Kwame Valley, they actually went through transformation when we were first settled, hops was king. And then hops got replaced when all the Dutch moved here, Dutch immigrants, and they and it became dairy. And now dairy is fading out. So there's like evolutions that take place here. What happened where all of these sheep farms got converted to dairy farms in the last 40 years? What was the dynamics or economics behind all that? Well, it comes down to one word, doesn't it? Money. Money. <laughs> so what happened, there's a reason there was a lot of sheep jokes around New Zealanders because um, new, sheep like was the backbone of the country but you know and then then that sort of bottomed out and there suddenly was a lot of money in dairy and at that time the land in mid canterbury where you visited was very achievable so um they would come down and they just wipe these things they like and they just put the dairy in the middle and they put the center pivot over and it's just like vavoom brand new farm so you know and it was very achievable on land prices you know that is not the case now um and and New Zealand has a great deal of respect for its dairy farmers. Australia, not so much. They have a lot of mining and things like that. So, um, and so even though when New Zealand's struggling, like the whole country knows they're struggling because all the service industries are struggling. So, you know, that's how you ring bells, isn't it? It all comes down to money, um, sadly, you know, because I'm a died in the wool, want to care for cows. So for me, you know, I find that a little distasteful. But it is the reality of the world nowadays, and um, I think sometimes I feel like the cows are a byproduct to the to the owning the land and growing the grass. I can see that so much. I, and for our viewers to understand, when Diana was t- d- describing about how easily the land was converted, that has a little bit explaining to do because on your part, because what she means by that is they once again the seasonal dairy farming that I alluded to earlier in the program is prevalent in uh, New Zealand and it costs a lot less to set up a dairy farm than what Americans are used to, which requires massive amount of capital infrastructure and barns galore because we do, we house our cows inside and bring the feed to them. 
where they pasture so much, people can convert these sheep farms to dairy farm by just basically plopping a carousel in the middle of the field. Yeah. And putting some irrigation in. Um, I will say that in Southland, it's a lot colder and not to your level, but you know, enough that there's a ton of mud when cows are calving. And um there is more there are more barns going up in those regions. And I think that will um continue to be pressure on farmers to do that for animal welfare, which I think is is a good thing in some, you know, in a lot of respects, because there was instances where cows in Southland were calving up to their belly in mud, which is absolutely absurd. So I mean that is definitely and you can't have access to a whole lot of green grass on cows that are not calved, right? So it's mm-hmm. like if you put them on fresh grass, it's like, wow, now they're gonna flag up. So it's a it's a yin and a yang, but I I think there will be there does seem to be a little bit more move towards um, housing cows in Australia, a little bit more housing simply because it's so hot. Yes, yes, and and so one thing that was a big surprise to me, Diana, was a lot of the shelters of these seasonal farms. This wasn't the case with uh, the Stewarts of Barwell Farms, but a lot of these uh, seasonal farmers. Their only shelter is these giant hedges that are yeah. these hedges of trees. And that yeah. was like a new concept to me. And like every farm of any size on the wind side of the farm, they plant these big hedges of various different types of vegetation. There are some that are uh, like uh, evergreen trees. Some of yeah. them are like poplar trees. And there's these big firms that come and make these things beautifully hedged so they look nice. But uh, that's just like a, that too was just a foreign concept to me. It was like, where are the sheds? Where are the loafing sheds <laughs> to, to somebody like me, you know? It's so. good if, um, it's good for those hedges as long as they haven't got center pivots. It seemed to be not great if they got center pivots because they got to go right across and the wheels have got to go through. So that, that sort of spelled the end for some of those things. But those hedges have been a godsend for some people like to protect cows from wind, um, you know, because they're really thick, deep foliage. So they can, you know, if they get them in the right place and the center pivot isn't trashing through them, um, it's a, it's it's a great thing. Well, it's something, isn't it? I should yes, say. Yes, well, I understand a lot of those uh, hedges are coming out because of the uh, insulation of pivot lines and that that type of irrigation requires free movement. And so those trees have to come down. And matter of fact, I think that the other steward, the other son is in the firewood business. And I think a lot of the source of his wood is some of those trees coming out. <laughs> oh, it's so a great loss though, isn't it? They, they, they kind of add to the, uh, I, I mean, they're actually kind of nice to look at when you're driving around. Yeah, they're pretty, <laughs> really pretty. Yes, yes. So um, this, the the seasonal farmers, just for the uh, listeners that may not know the dairy industry that much, in the States, we try to keep our milk production, because you're penalized if you don't, we try to keep our milk production as steady as possible. So that means we're trying to cap out, or freshen is what the dairymen say, about one twelfth of our herd every month, so that the the milk flow to the dairy stays even. In uh, New Zealand, they got a different gig because they're uh, 90% of their milk. I'm just throwing numbers around that I can't really substantiate, but I think it's really, really high number of their milk all goes into manufactured milk and cheese and things like that. And so they can uh, basically do the seasonal farming with greater prevalence and they do not count on this year round production of milk. First of all, what's a term that you describe a dairy farmer that's not seasonal, that milks year round? Do they have a name for those? Uh, let's say 
Well, you could say autumn calving or they have a winter milk contract or they year-round milking. I mean, year-rounders. Year I'd say year-rounders probably for me. And my dad was a year-rounder. Like he he housed cows in the winter in the 80s and um, and we milked all year round and had a winter contract, which generally paid more because it's harder to get the milk in winter here. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I remember making a joke back when I was 22 years old to those New Zealand dairy farmers. I said, well, if all of you are here and your cows are all dry, who's producing the milk for the kids? And the, I said, who is producing the milk for the New Zealanders uh, to drink? And he, and and one of them said, we don't drink milk. We drink ale. And then they all laughed and at my expense. And they thought that was funny. And, and uh... oh, yeah. I can imagine. <laughs> but they, um, you know, a lot of New Zealand's milk is export. So like a lot of it. Most of it, perhaps, right? Yeah, there's not many people here, right? So, right. you know, and we've got, like, I just looked up a couple of things. You've got 5 million cows and 11,000 dairy herds in New Zealand. Now, you compare that to um, Australia. Well, well, New Zealand is, what, 3% of wor world milk production. And Australia is, like, fourth in that, even though Australia's got a heap more people. But... Australia's only, you know, 4,400 farms as opposed to 11,000 dairy herds in New Zealand here. And but the some average, of them are. Yeah, well, the average cat, um, herd size here would be 400, and the average herd size in Australia is 276. Wow. Wow. That's amazing. So uh, what do you see the uh, in the future of uh, are more and more people going to be rounders uh, uh, all all your rounders or do you think it's going to stay pretty steady uh this ratio of the people that do seasonal farming as opposed to those that milk year round well uh to have you know a crystal ball would be a great thing new zealanders love their lifestyle and the dairy farmers that now dairy farm fewer and fewer of them are as passionate as we were we lived and breathed it you know um and i still would if i could i think now, like, you, I mean, for goodness sake, we've done once a day milking here. So, I mean, that tells you where their focus priority is for me. Like, you know, they're happy to milk, uh, you know, and that's not everyone. There are people doing high productions in New Zealand who are, you know, really pushing it. There's just such a divergent, diverse way of running their operations. It's really hard to, I think, put them in a buttonhole. I think the seasonal for New Zealand is always, it's ingrained in their psyche. I think it will be hard to make the shift for that. There's going to have to be innovative farmers and a solid reason why for them to move out of that. I'm not saying they wouldn't, but I'm not fully in the New Zealand system milking cows right now. And so I feel like it would be, I work more in Australia and I would not want to um, preempt anything by saying the wrong thing, but I've, to be honest, I think the seasonal thing has been on the books as long as I can remember. And I think I'm not saying it won't change, but I think it would be a hard psychology to shift. And I was surprised to see that there's some people in the purebred business and some of the publications I saw that do emphasize their cows and do emphasize high production that are actually seasonal farmers. That kind of surprised me. So, yeah, because right, you got to get your cows in calf, right? Like in a very mm -hmm. short window, like seven week mm -hmm. breeding thing. And if they don't make the cut, they're out. Like we never did that. Can't imagine doing that with a good cow. So, right. I mean, you know, we had cows doing a thousand kilograms of milk solids routinely. Um, and yet, you know, people are happy now in New Zealand with 300 per cow kilograms of milk solids, which to me, you know, I'm a different, I'm, I'm read a little different. And for me, 
you know, I'm not real keen to get out of bed for that. So <laughs> it's a it's a different it's a di- I'm a I'm a different animal. I'm a weird hybrid now. So I'm not I'm not sure if I can be called a true Kiwi. I think I think Frank Robinson said they should DNA me. So it's a little bit um <laughs> I'm a little bit but I see what they're doing and I understand what they're doing. I appreciate what they're doing, but I just I love to see cows fully fed. I love to see cows achieve their potential. So, and I hate to see cows wasted. So a lot of that stuff for me is not who I am. I understand what they're doing it for. I'm not judging them. It's just, if you're asking me, would I do that? No. Well, let's just uh, take a break for a moment. And uh, when we come back, we'll continue talking about dairy farming in New Zealand and comparing and contrasting that with here in Washington State. Uh, We'll be right back. You're listening to Valley 104.9 FM, your Valley community radio station. Remember to join us at 1 p.m. on Sunday for Animal Radio. Animal Radio is America's most listened-to pet show. The nearly two-hour celebration of our pets is hosted by veterinary talent Hal Abrams and Judy Francis. So tune in, 1 p.m. Sunday, Animal Radio. Hi, everybody. This is Jay Fisk, host of Keeping Track of Giving Back in the Valley. We're the show that's on every week, and we talk about nonprofits that help all of us who live, work, and play here in the fabulous Snoqualmie Valley. You can catch us at 5.30 p.m. on Sunday, and then we do an encore presentation on Monday at 6.30 p.m. That's 5.30 Sunday evening and 6.30 on Monday for Keeping Track of Giving Back in the Valley right here on Valley 104.9 FM. Hi, I'm Melinda Hemmelgarn, a registered dietitian, investigative nutritionist, and host of Food Sleuth Radio, the show that helps us think beyond our plates, connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture, and find food truth. If you care about the food you eat, then join me on Sundays at 3 p.m. on Valley 104.9 FM for Food Sleuth Radio. Please join Interim City Manager Bob Jean and me, Mayor Kimless, for Carnation Currents, Sundays at 5 p.m., Thursdays 5.30 p.m., and Fridays 6 p.m. on Valley Radio 104.9 FM for the latest updates of Carnation. Welcome back, Tales from Tolt. Today, our guest is Diana Malcolm from New Zealand. Continuing this talk about uh, comparing and contrasting between New Zealand practices and dairy farming and the states, one of the reasons I brought this up, Diana, is there is a lot of movement afoot in the states about being very careful about the ethical treatment of our animals. And now you, you people are paying premium prices for, you know, eggs from pastured chickens and all this type of stuff. You know, there's there's a real emphasis on the quality of life for the for the particular animals, people willing to pay, people wanting to see return to family farms and smaller scale farming, and they don't want to see this continued huge evolution towards extremely large operations. If nothing else, but just it kind of puts in food safety jeopardy issues that so much of your production can come from such few producers that that raises some uh, uh, particular issues too. We just had a poultry operation that had to be continued, you know, they had to kill all the birds because of uh, disease and it was just a, nearly a million birds but these barns are just you know they're just so large and so there's a lot of emphasis here about 
maybe returning to things uh, the way they used to be. And I know that when my grandparents farmed in the Snoqualmie Valley uh, and a great-grandfather was actually a dairyman in the uh, Snoqualmie Valley, they were self-sufficient as they could. The emphasis was on low cost and being as self-sufficient. So basically they raised their own hay, they raised their own silage, they raised this thing called... Uh, uh, fodder beets, or some people called them mangle beets, big beets that they would cut up for cattle. And, you know, they were just self-sufficient. Then it went to a time where we kind of evolved to where they were bringing an alfalfa hay from other parts of the state, and they were feeding high concentrated grain, going for the highest milk production, and and then it all just disappeared. And now it's back on this side of the mountains. Um, so I wonder at times if something that is basically because labor cost is one of the things is a big driving factor in the economics of all this, if maybe seasonal type farming could be uh, possibly less because of its primarily as a pasture type uh, operation and basically trying to keep labor cost at the minimum. Do you think that that could possibly be? something that might lend itself to small farming to return in parts of uh, the states? I don't know. I suppose it depends on demand and supply a little bit, you know, like the, the world needs more food, right? So mm -hmm. I think, um, you know, there's going to be some balance there. Like it's all very good to have this wonderful um, view of it all. And, I, and I'm as bad as the best of them. I want every cow looked after like she's a queen. Um, but, you know, but there is going to be some reality in there. So, um, but I think we certainly, like animal welfare is massive for me. And I think it's great that we're being made accountable because, right, when you see those barns from the road, you can't tell what's going on in there, right? Mm -hmm. So I think, you know, and and there are good people and there are bad people in all walks of life, including farming. So I think it's important that this animal welfare standards are held up. I really, really get that. Um, I do understand we need a certain amount of throughput and, you know, you need a certain amount of money to guarantee that throughput. And, you know, these bigger farms can command milk factories premium prices, which some of the smaller farms don't have that bargaining power. While it's it's very um, philosophically lovely, you know, there is going to be a balance. And so I think we've got to be realistic about that. First off, holding everyone to account on how they treat animals. That's a given for me. I think that's a wonderful development and I am wholeheartedly behind it. Um, well, I am too. I think that it's really important because I can honestly say that it seems like, you know, cows are really, they all had names when I grew up. Every yeah, farm you went to. They... Yep. And like, to be honest, you know, like we got on really well with our vets. We did a lot of stuff to save cows. And um, and I take that extremely seriously, that responsibility. You put them somewhere, you need to look after them, you need to make sure they come out of there safely, or you make sure they don't suffer, one or the other. I don't understand anyone who doesn't want to do that. Like, I don't even know whether they're farming. They do not need to be farming. If you're farming just for money, I just, I, I, I know it probably happens, but I don't, for me, it's not what I'm about. But I understand no. that money makes the world turn around because I've farmed in Australia from a standing start and one of the toughest places to farm. I understand about owing money. So um, I just, I don't know. I don't think I'm the, it's such a big subject. I think it's very hard for us to get across it here, across all the realms. I mean, for, for the, 
New Zealand um, is born and bred on dairy. They they still dairy farmers are still well thought of. I think what we do need to do in agriculture is continue to lift our profile. I remember because I've toured America, right? I've gone across with a journalist tour with Worldwide Size. I've seen the farms over there. I've been to World Dairy Expo multiple times. You know, um, we've visited a lot of farms here in Canada and various other places. So I in England. So I it's not like I've just sat in New Zealand. I've seen outside our shores a lot of New Zealanders don't see outside our shores and they don't have a greater appreciation for what the world dairy farming um, platform looks like Mm -hmm. and and I am a little more in the stud game so um, well a lot more in the stud game so you know that gives the probably a lot of the commercial dairymen would you know not be happy to hear some of this conversation but I I can only say what I feel and what I think you Mm -hmm. know I'm reflecting their views because but I believe, I would love to see, and I work for a big firm in Australia who do believe there will come a time when these family farms come back full circle and we see them again. They I hope think so. that, they think that is the long game. I don't speak to many others that think it, but I really respect these guys I work for. They're a very clever group of um highly intelligent people which um work work in a lot of the world market too, and, and they do believe they're there may be a full circle and I hope that I hope it does. Um, I just, I think we're going to have to have a blend in a way and technology is going to give us our individual cow care. I just did a story on um, those boluses that go into the cows that you can do the rumination temperature, all that sort of stuff. I think that's important because we're losing stockmen. You know, I will see a sick cow from 200 paces, but you know, a lot of the staff on these farms, you know, people don't have time to train them or they don't have the natural instinct, so they don't develop it. Um, if you either have it or you don't, but you can choose to develop it. And I think I see, you know, less and less stockmanship. And so the technology takes it over, but I'd rather have the technology than a bad result for a cow. But if you have right. stockmanship and you have technology, you know, that really allows you to care more efficiently and, and better for these cows because you're going to be able to interpret the data. If you can't interpret the data, you can't help the cow. So it's a tricky subject. I'm all for technology uh, like with you. I'm all for it, but I totally understand what you're talking about with the professionalism of being a, a stock person because it really is invaluable to the, uh, uh, that you actually have someone that knows cattle and can spot those type of things with a negative I, I find it interesting that when we have dairies here still putting in robots to milk and that's becoming the rage here, I learned in New Zealand there's been a few that have gone through that circle and they've actually now removing it, uh, removing robots because of the expense and the maintenance of them that the farmers did not anticipate that the, the shelf life of those things was going to be so short. Robot alert, robot alert. <laughs> I, I, um, I don't know, like I've seen a guy in England who took it, took them out, um, and, but then I've seen them in Australia working extremely efficiently on um, where people are good stockmen and they're running a good ship. I, I don't know. It seems so personal, doesn't it, the robot thing? Like it just seems like I'd rather just get the cows in, check them all and milk them and be done than be about to go out and have an alert and have to sort it out but I mean maybe that next generation of kids you know they're so much more adept at looking at computers and working all that out you know I'm probably in the in the interim sort of like really interested in tech but I don't really want to learn it I just want to absorb it and know it I don't want the process so I don't know like but if in a, I think when you watch those alerts come in randomly and it, you know cups aren't cleaning or they're not this or that 
like I don't know, like it's sort of like the hybrid cars. Are they actually there yet, or is is it these people are doing the interim work for everyone else? That when we finally get the great result, it'll be awesome. I don't know. I'm, I'm right. not sure. Right, right. It, it, uh, yeah, I learned uh, new uh, because robots were. If you would have told me that robots would be milking cows 22 years ago in a cigarette farm, I would actually found that to be quite funny. And uh, and now I'm learning terms like sweeping the herd, where you have to get the list of unmilked cows that haven't been milked in 24 hours. You have to go out and find them. And unfortunately, just like you were talking about that you can have a cow, a great where some guys have to choose to actually call those cows just because they don't get the robot thing. They won't come in to be milked without a border collie or somebody bringing them in. And so they now all of a sudden they have to get called for no other reason, but they just didn't get with the whole. And that seems like a, it can be a waste of genetics to me that you can have a high producing cow there and you had to get rid of her because she didn't want to you know, voluntarily come in twice a day to get milk. But in general, in New Zealand, you know, the um, the list of things that you'll find with commercial dairymen is they want, you know, cows are getting calf and they don't get lame and they, which is all the same stuff, but they've got a very small window to get in calf. Therefore, if they're a high producer and they have a tough calving, the chances of turning them around and getting them in calf is is slim and they could be the highest producing cow. They won't make the cut and they'll lose those cows and the, and the little fat useless one that probably she will get in calf and carry on. So, you know, but I think there is certainly an argument for these mid-sized Holsteins, you know, with plenty of width and muzzle, great udders, good legs. There's there's a real argument for keeping those cows moderately sized and efficient. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and jerseys are obviously have come into their own, like a bigger jersey, um, which you don't see loads of in New Zealand. They're sort of more the smaller framed cows but if you get a big north american jersey gee they can be they can be a they can really take it to the holsteins and i'm a holstein girl so you know that's a big call but they are like you know i think you know new zealand is really focused on that crossbred so those cows to them aren't as valuable as say a purebred would be you know you're not looking at six generations of excellent in those cows you know they don't classify it's half of them most of them don't herd test like if the cow doesn't get in calf she doesn't make the cut for whatever reason but she's gone it's that simple mm-hmm. yeah i was i was i was really surprised about the size of cows the kiwis or whatever they referred to them and that was amazement to me because in north america our cows tend to be much larger i mean our care cells that you uh, uh, have to be bigger. Everything is larger here because our cows are such more enormous size than even the Canadian uh, cows up north. Uh, our cows are pretty big here. Yeah, I, I do. Um, you know, the, even the show circle, right, has come back to a moderate-sized cow with plenty of width. And mm-hmm. um, and I can see that, you know, like, but um, I think, you know, when you talk about cows, good cows, you're talking about balance, aren't you, you know? And if you have an extreme cow, it's harder to be balanced in various mm-hmm. reasons. There are cows that are bigger here in New Zealand, and you would have seen them at TJ Stewart's. They've got, you know, North American bred cows. There are those guys here. They're just not as plentiful. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it's just there are different ways to skin the cat, as it were, and, and everyone <laughs> chooses their way. There's just less choosing that way. But, you know, like we chose that way too we had dad would rather have milked um you know like 20 cows as opposed to 30 but those 20 would give as much as 30 like he was per cow production 
whereas a lot of farms here might be more per, per hectare production. Mm -hmm. So they're mm -hmm. looking at the overall production rather than the per cow. But um, I would rather milk less cows and get more out of them if it was me. If you're asking me, I'd rather put on less cups, <laughs> clean less, you know, less shit. It's sort of that sort of thing. But mm -hmm. each to their own, I guess. I mean, and I do respect the commercial dairymen. You know, they've built up a lot of wealth here. They they own a lot of land and they do, you know, and they've done really well. And I, it's just it's just a different way. Like I, mm -hmm. if I go on the farm to do an interview and all carbs don't sort of run to the front of the pen, I'm wondering why is that? Because they they mm -hmm. should be happy to see you, right? They should be running up. So for me, mm -hmm. I'm... You know, I'm constantly thinking, yeah, okay, that's interesting, you know. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, Diana, this has been a, uh, a such a treat. I sure do appreciate that. I could literally talk all afternoon by this, but, but looking at the clock, it looks like we're out of time. So I do appreciate your time today. This has been fun. It was an incredible experience for me, and you helped facilitate that to be in New Zealand. And I know my Listeners, many of which I hear uh, when I get back to the valley, a lot of people are really sad about the demise of the dairy farming that occurred in the Soquan Valley. We remember all the farms you get to the people my age and, and older, we can still name all the farms and who was there. And they're all gone uh, with the exception of just a couple few spattered here and there. And they've been, they're being replaced by uh, the farms being converted to truck gardens for vegetable production. Uh, there's one big dairy farm that's now a, a rock concert venue where they have stands out there and they do rock concerts and they and uh, some other uh, and many of them are just vacant. They're just vacant uh, and they would be built on if it wasn't for the flood keeping, uh, you know, building permits at bay because the, the annual floods that come from the river prohibit the building in there or they would be all buildings now because it's quickly becoming just a suburb of the Seattle area. So, but um, that's all the time we have for today. Dinah, thank you so much for joining me today. This has been a, a, a delight to talk to you. Well, thank you for having me and um, thanks for listening. Sorry, I sound a little bit undecided about the way dairy should go. I, I'm just sort of don't want to. Uh, we want your personal off. opinion and you gave it. So that, that's what that's what counts. <laughs> so. I'm good at that. <laughs> okay, viewers. Uh, so uh, tune back next week as we continue to explore the interesting and fascinating uh, history of the wonderful place we call the Sunquan Valley. Bye-bye, folks. Goodbye. <laughs>